I had been thinking about uh, my best friend uh, growing up, my first best friend I ever had. Can you, maybe you can think of uh, who it was for you, but mine, uh, we went to kindergarten together. Uh, at that point, we started going to different schools, but we went to the same church, and so we saw each other often. We'd hang out all the time. Uh, but I, what I remember was there came a point where we stopped hanging out. Uh, it was something that I didn't understand what was going on, where it was like we were hanging out all the time, and then all of a sudden, he, he, was, just, he was never available. He never had time to hang out. He was always busy. Uh, he didn't want to hang out either. And even when I saw him at church, all of a sudden I started getting the cold shoulder from him. And, and I just felt like, what, what's going on, man? We are, we're buddies. We're like, what, why don't you want to hang out? What's going on? Like, just at least tell me what's going on. And it, I just remember it was a really confusing thing that I felt like, did, did I get duped or something like that? Like, I thought this was, I thought we were good friends and now all of a sudden, you're, you're just like, no, I don't want anything to do with you. You maybe don't have that same exact story, but I think that there's probably something similar that, that you felt. Probably a time where you felt like, I, I'm close to this person. Uh, I know who we are. We're good friends. We're close. We have a meaningful connection. And then all of a sudden, for some reason... We, we're not hanging out. This person doesn't want anything to do with me or this person doesn't want to be close. And did this person trick me? Like, did what happened to the past that we had together? And it just becomes confusing and we're trying to make sense of it and we're hurt and we just think, how, how do I keep this from happening again? And so we, we need to find a way to, to guard our hearts. At times, we, we relate to God and we think, how do I need to guard my heart? Because what if the chance happens that he dupes me? What if it's not just that people that, that, that trick me and, and don't follow through and there's not the actual connection, but what if God himself is tricking me? What if I think that I'm close, but we're not actually as close as it seems? You know, in, we're going through the study in, in 1 John, and John is writing the, this epistle telling people about, this is how you have fellowship with God. This is how you are close to him. And he says, he says, I want you to know how to be close to God and how to have a meaningful connection to him. And for this group that he's writing to, they're being taught and being pulled by teaching that isn't orthodox. They're being told that there's something else you can do, there's some other way to have a meaningful connection to God, and he's writing to them saying, no, you're, don't pull away from the truth that is already before you. So he wants to remind them and to reassure them, this is what you have in Christ. Hold fast to what you have in Christ and don't Throw it away and don't chase after something else that's not better. You already have everything you need for fellowship with him. God is not duping you. And so in the midst of doubt, he reminds them of what God has given them and what their spiritual reality is. And so we're going to be in, we're going to be in 1 John 2 today. So he starts here... Uh, we're going to start in verse 12, and he starts with, what are the provisions that we have in Christ? He says, uh, verse 12, I am writing to you, dear children, 
because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you fathers because you know, who, you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. He writes and he, he speaks to three groups of people. He says there's, there's the children, there's the fathers, and there's the young men. He says for the children you have been forgiven. He says to the fathers you know God. And to, to the young men he says you have overcome the evil one. He speaks to three groups here. And let me, let me just pause for a second and, and uh, be, be honest with you. This is, this is a tricky and confusing passage. Um, John's writing style is it's very stylized. Um, it's not like Paul, where Paul is like very logical and methodical in, in, in his writing. John, he, his topics flow. He's kind of hard to diagram and to outline. Uh, as, I'm, as I'm reading people about this passage, there's a lot of people that are like, I kind of get the idea, but the nuance is a little confusing here. So I, I want to give you, the, the biblical truth here is clear, but some of the nuance, I'm going to give you kind of the best shot that we have with it, and, and we can just be honest about sometimes the, the Bible can be a little bit confusing. Um, he writes here mentioning these three groups. Uh, what I think is happening here is I think he's talking to two groups. Uh, in, in 1 John, he writes pastorally, and there's times where he speaks of his audience calling them children. So I think he says at the beginning, dear children, your sins have been forgiven. I think he's talking to the entire community that he's writing to and saying, here's the truth about who you are. Your sins have been forgiven. I think after writing that, then he says, now as I'm looking at this whole community, there's two groups within it. There are the mature people and there are the maturing. And so he says, of the mature, you have, you have known God. You have come to a place where you have intimate fellowship with God. And then this other group, you, are, you have been experiencing the freedom and the liberation from sin. And so I think he's speaking really to, to two groups here, but the big point is, is that speak, this speaks to the provisions that we have in God, the provisions that God gives us through the gospel, that he gives us the freedom from, this, from our sin, he gives us forgiveness, he gives us liberation from the power that sin has over us, and he also makes himself available for being known and having a relationship with. That this is, these are the things that God gives us, and this is the reality of the person who has placed their faith in Jesus, is that they have these provisions made available to them that they can use and lean into and, and rely on. It's interesting that he says these specific things because the audience that he's writing to is being taught Gnostic teachings. Gnostic teachings were, these were people that said, there's the truth of Scripture, but what you also need is there's also some sort of needed mystical experience that you need to have with God if you really want to mature. If you really want to mature in your faith, it's not just scripture that you need, but you also need to have some kind of supernatural encounter with God. And he's going to reveal something to you, and then you're going to be able to know what it's like to walk closely with him. 
And John is saying, you don't need that. You already have everything that you need. God has already made himself knowable to you. He has already forgiven your sins. He's already given you freedom and liberation from the sin that, that once ruled over you. And he points out to this, he says, these are the things that are before you and that the gospel provides to you. You don't need anything else. Let me reassure you that you have this. That the gospel gives us access to everything that we need to fellowship with God. That these are the things that we have. These are the things that we can value. These are the things that we can have confidence in. That if you've placed your faith in Jesus, this is what you have. You know, I was, um, this reminds me of a story. Uh, I had a group of friends uh, some years ago that uh, whenever we'd get together, uh, we'd play board games. And the game of choice that would often come up was Risk. Uh, if you've ever, if you've never played Risk, so it's like this strategy game, and what you're trying to do is, is you have an army and you're trying to take over the world. Uh, there was one friend in the group who always kind of laid prey to whoever the newcomer was, uh, and didn't really know how the game worked, and so he would always, he always was more than willing to give advice. And, uh, you know, you're trying to figure out, like, where should I move my troops and what, what land should I take over and what should, what's vulnerable and should be conquered. And he would always be more than willing to help you figure out where to put your pieces. Um, the thing was, the advice he always gave was always helpful to him. Uh, and so he would always tell you, like, oh, that place over there, like, you should move your troops there and go and try to conquer this area. And maybe it was helpful for you, maybe not, but it was always helpful for him. And the thing was, you would have maybe even the most strategic part under control on the map, and he could convince you, you, you don't need to be there, you should move your troops somewhere else. And you would start thinking like, oh yeah, maybe he's right, he's persuasive, and he's kind of making good arguments of, I don't need to be here, this isn't that valuable, I should go over here, and then you lose the game. Uh, there's, there's times where we might forget the value of what we already have. There's times where we listen to enough voices and we can lose confidence in the reality of what we've already been given and have access to. And we can get persuaded and we can start thinking, yeah, maybe, maybe that's not as good as I thought. And all these people are telling me this over here and I actually need that. And don't I want to have this kind of encounter with God and this kind of relationship? Shouldn't it look like that, right? And maybe what I have or what I thought I had isn't as good as what it seemed. The identification that we have as Christians is that we are people who trust in the promises of God. You know, John 3.16, the, the person who believes in Jesus has eternal life. Like, the, the marker that we are, who we are as a people, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, you're placing your faith in him and, and you are trusting that he will keep his promise that you are trusting that he is going to give you eternal life. You are trusting that he has forgiven you. 
And the way that we live from that moment on, the moment that we place our faith in him, it is marked by our continual faith that Jesus really is going to keep what his promises. He really is going to do what he says. And so as much as there might be doubts that come in, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, we trust that he will keep his word. You know, in, in Ephesians 1, 3, he says, Praise be to God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. This is, this is a promise that God has not withheld blessings from us, that he's not going to, that he's not going to fail to follow through and that we need to find something else but the provisions that he's given us we are taking him at his word that he will follow through with those blessings and there's nothing else that we need let me reassure you that if you are a christian meaning you have placed your faith in jesus for eternal life that he will keep his promises and he is giving you these blessings that this is the reality that we hold to as Christians. This is what is true about you. And so let's have confidence in the blessings that God has given us through the gospel. See, when, when doubts arise, they lead us down a dark path, a costly one. And so the pitfall is do not lose heart, do not get pulled off course, so he said, he, John continues in, in verse 15. He says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. John here is writing and he says, There is a competition for your affection." He says, I, he just tells you, let me remind you of who you are in Christ. And then immediately he follows with, be careful of where you place your affections. He writes here, he says, he's talking about the world. This is not a technical word. This is a very like broad, inclusive word. This is, I, I like this definition of it, uh, that the world is the organized system which acts as a rival to God. It is a moral and spiritual system designed to draw people away from God. This is not just one thing in, in particular, but he's saying this is anything that functions as a rival to God that takes our affections away from him. John writes about, he says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. These are, uh, these are things where the lust of the flesh, like the, the things that we desire to experience, uh, the, the lust of the eyes, the things that we desire to have. Uh, the pride of life, this, this is, um, the pride of life, it, it's, it's like the arrogance that comes out of uh, your achievement. The feeling that I am secure and there's nothing else that I need. And he says, these are things that these are uh, expressions of the world that take us away and, and distract us from, from what ultimately God has provided us in the gospel and what prevents us from ultimately experiencing 
intimate fellowship with him. He says, beware of these things. He's writing to, to an audience that is facing and, and questioning if they really have the provisions that the gospel says they are. And so in response, they need to find something to supplement it. And so if I can't get everything that I need, if God is possibly withholding blessings from me, where else do I go? And so the, the draw becomes, I need to find something from the world to meet these needs. John sees that all Christians, and this is across the spectrum of maturity, can be caught between the place where they place their affections. He, again, just, just moments before this, he wrote about children, he wrote about fathers, he wrote about young men, any stage of the Christian experience. And he says all stages are, are vulnerable to being led astray. No matter, no matter where we are and how far along we are in our, our journey, every one of us is susceptible to being drawn away from, place, from holding firmly to what we have in Christ and trying to fill ourselves with something else. That the point doesn't come in this life where we have total freedom from this. John, John's describing it that there's the competition between am I going to continue trusting in what I have in Christ or am I going to put my trust in something else? And this comes at the cost of, of the fellowship that I have with God. This comes at the cost of uh, that I should be able to relate with God deeper. I'm missing opportunities to grow in my intimacy with him. See, I think when, when John specifically is writing about the world, this, the broadness of, the, of the, use, the use of the word world, it could be you know, the, the very blatant sins we think of, things like you know, greed, selfishness, lust, vanity, these things. It's anything that rivals God. This can also be things where we set up a religious system to find righteousness. Ways that we try to perform or achieve. You know, he's writing this thinking of Gnostics in mind who are trying to find new ways to relate to God apart from the gospel. Things that on the surface could actually seem good. And John is saying, anything that is not in line with the gospel, that you're not trusting what you already have in the gospel, he says, this is, this is a competition away from, from, your, from your relationship with God. So this is taking away love that you're, you should be giving to God, and it's putting it towards something else. Um, truth be told, I think I know five hymns uh, I never grew up uh, in, in a church that did hymns, but of the five, my favorite, um, uh, it, it, has a, it has a verse that the first time I heard it, it stood out to me, um, and it just, it gave words that, that reflected how often, how I struggle sometimes in my relationship with God. You know, so it's, this is the, the third verse from Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. He says, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. 
Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. You know, I, this was something that I, I heard and I just felt like, man, that so often feels like my heart that is wandering and prone to wander. And, and I, what I particularly love about it is that he says, he says um, prone to leave the God I love. Like, I love God, and yet, for some reason, I feel so inclined so often to wander away from him. That in this, this competition where, where I love God and I want to put my affections there, for some reason, I just... I seem like I, I just get sidetracked so easily and put my affection somewhere else. And, and what's so sad about this is the shallowness that it keeps my relationship with God. That I relate to God to some degree, I can, I can bring some parts of my heart to Him, but then at some point when I get too overwhelmed, when I get too stressed or too fearful, I find something else to meet my needs and I bring that anxiety and fear and shame somewhere else for it to get addressed. And so the depth that I should be experiencing with God, I don't have that encounter because I've brought those needs somewhere else. I've wandered away from him and I haven't allowed God to meet the depths of of my heart. I've doubted what I had in him, and so I've turned to something else to meet those needs. And so I never learned to fully depend on God. I never learned how God actually would provide for me. I, wouldn't, I don't experience the fullness of what I can have in him because I doubt that he really is who he says he is. I want to point out with, with this passage that... Um, this, this description of wandering, um, this description of placing our, our love uh, in the world rather than God, what's, what's at stake here is the affection that we can have from God, not the relationship that we have with God. Like going back to, to verse 15, just notice, if anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them. He's not saying the Father's love for that person is getting lost. Like it's our love that we're redirecting to the wrong place, and so I'm missing out on chances to to interact with God deeply. Nothing is changing with his love. His love towards me has not been changed. It's not going somewhere else. And so we're not losing God's affection. We're just missing out on opportunities to relate with him. This is, what's at, this is what's at stake. And so we need to persist in redirecting our affections and redirecting our heart towards him because he is better. When we doubt that he has made himself available to us, we must know where to find the motivation to persevere. Uh, we look at the promise. And this is continuing in verse 17. He says, The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. 
This is, this is another one of the, the confusing verses in, in this passage. He, what I want you to notice is the contrast that's happening here. There is a contrast between the world and it being temporary and the person who's living in the will of God and that he lasts. The, the verb here and the language here is, it says uh, the, will, the person who does the will of God lives forever. Uh, he's saying here, this, the word here is the word that usually gets translated remain or abide. Uh, John, John uses this word a lot in, in his writing. Like if you think of like John 15, like uh, the vine and the branches abide in me. He's using the same word here. And he, so he says, the person who does the will of God, uh, the person who follows the world or the world itself is temporary. There is a transience to it. It does not satisfy, it does not last, it is temporary, and there will be a time where it, where it is no more. But the person who does God's will, there is, there is lasting there. There is uh, something sustaining, there is something satisfying, there is something even into eternity that this has impact on life. And what, it, what is the will of God? You know, earlier, earlier in this book, he's talked about this. He's, he's told us two main things. In, in chapter one, he said, what you need to do to have fellowship and intimacy with God is you need to be honest with your sin. You need to walk in the light. The thing he says then in chapter two is he says, if you want to have fellowship with God, you need to love one another. He says, if you walk in the light, if you are honest with your sin, and if you love one another, the promise is that this will have an eternal impact on how you can fellowship and relate with God. That there will be total, there will be satisfaction that you can find with this. This will be something that is lasting and not something that is temporary and gives you a, an immediate uh, an immediate high and then disappears, but this will be something that is lasting and you will benefit the fruits of this into eternity. This takes a long view and requires for us to think of what is it, not just that I need in the moment, but what is it that, how is this going to last going forward? Is this something that's sustainable? You know, there's a there's an interview that that I heard this week. Um, so this author Jennifer Brennan E. Wallace, uh, she wrote a book. She just came out with this book. It's called Never Enough: When Achievement Culture Turns Turns Toxic, and What to Do About It. Um, she she writes in this that she did a study of um, middle to upper class high school students in high achieving high schools. That's a mouthful. Um, and she says, when I looked at this and I looked at um, the studies related to them compared to uh, youth who have gone through a number of traumatic experiences or been at high risk for, for different factors, the rates of anxiety, depression, and substance abuse were the same. That someone who was raised in foster care system had just as many, had struggled just as much as the person who came from a fairly affluent life in a very high achieving high school. And what's, what's the connection? How, like, how could that be the same? So she, she's having conversations about this and one of the things that comes up often is we blame social media. 
And we say, well, the, you know, the problem ultimately is, is social media. The, the youth are spend, they spend too much time on it, so they're, they're just comparing themselves to each other, and there's these benchmarks that you need to meet, and this is what ultimately the problem is. And so what, what's the fix? Well, less time on social media, or social media is bad, or you need to limit screen time. These are the things that are, that are the problem, and if you limit that, then what should happen is then our youth should be, have better mental health. Uh, some of the toxicity of high achievement should go away, right? But this is what she says. Uh, Social media is certainly a magnifier and accelerant to these toxic pressures, but it's not the root of it. The root of this is a lack of mattering universally. A lack of feeling valued for who we are at our core. We feel valued now for what we achieve, how much money we make. Society tells us certain people matter more. Those influencers matter more. Those with more likes matter more. What I see as a social media crisis is a crisis of mattering. And that goes much deeper than social media. You know, the, the fix that we find in the world is we notice that there's something wrong, but then we find some solution for it that doesn't meet the depth of the need. And we can, we can stigmatize social media all we want, and there's, there's issues with it, but that's not ultimately the problem. You know, and when, when I was younger, there were, uh, that was kind of when school shootings became more and more um, frequent, or at least publicized, and so the problem was, you know, it's violent video games, and that's what the problem is. And we can find different solutions, we can strategize, and we create different things to try to address the problem, but none of those things will actually address the depth of it. You know, the, the world and how John is talking about the world, the world can create things and create strategies to try to meet needs, but because it doesn't meet the depth of the need, it will be temporary. It's, it's a band-aid solution. And what we ultimately need is we need to matter. We, we're asking the question, do, do I matter? Do I have worth? Does, does it even matter that I'm here? Like, does anyone notice me? Do, do people accept me? Do, are there people that care about me? And doing something with social media, doing something with violent video games, that doesn't meet that need. And John, John says, if you're wanting fellowship with God, when you turn to something other than God and what he promises in the gospel, you're not going to meet the need that you ultimately have. The need that you ultimately need to matter. So I think if John were here, I think if John heard this and says, we need to know that we matter, I think he would say, will you go back and read verse 12 again and start there? Will you go back and reread where he says that God loves you enough that he, will for, that he forgave your sins? That he says, you matter enough that I will send my son to provide forgiveness for you. That you matter enough 
that God will make himself knowable to you and he wants to know you. That you matter enough that the sins that we struggle with, that he says he will provide liberation from it, that we don't have to be controlled by that anymore. That these are the truths that we need and these are the truths that will ultimately satisfy us and provide fulfillment. And it's here that when we live in this, there will be blessings that, and fulfillment that we can have and in, in, enjoy into eternity. But John's point is, is come back to this, hold on to these. When those doubts come up, when you're questioning, do I, do I really have what the gospel says I have or do I need something more? John's point is hold fast to those. You have what you need. Don't lose confidence. Place your faith in Jesus, trust in him, and trust that he will keep his promises.